back. Hello. Hello. And of course, welcome back, Jen. Thank you. Uh, welcome all Monday night, Generational Change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And this is the first time in, I think, like six weeks that yeah. we are together in the studio again. And we're matching. Well, oh, of, of course. Course. you make it sound like it's so happenstance. No, it wasn't that confusing. But of course, uh, you know, the, it, it's the not. stream of political discussion can only, <laughs> you know, we've got so much to discuss. We do. This has been, but, I mean, we haven't been in the same, in the studio for so long. No, we haven't. Okay. But of course, who better to kick it off than somebody who has written a wonderful book. Okay. And I, I have to, wait, I, I've taken copious notes. Don't look, look. I look. Okay, that's you're just I, trying to impress the professor, Jen. Uh, no, no. Doing. In all honesty, those the green and yellow is just the only colors that I had. They mm. don't really mean anything. But, but, um, yeah. Hey, Tony. Okay, so guys, I I don't even remember what show I was watching, um, where I saw an interview with our guest, and the book looked really interesting to me. So I went ahead and I actually did it audio. Um, because I do that, but then I found, then I got the book and I was able to actually then go back and take notes. So it was kind of cool. But anyway, this book is really cool to me because it really, um, I can't like summarizes and encapsulates the things that we knew and know are wrong about neoliberal policy, but it really breaks it down I in a very good way. neoliberal policy was perfect. Yeah, no. So um, I thought, and I just, I really um, liked it a lot. And so I'm looking forward to talking with her. So uh, She's a history professor at yes. Claremont College in Los Angeles, California, and she is the author of this very cool book called Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. Lily Geismer, welcome to Generational Change. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I, it's such an honor to be here and also to see all those post-it notes. I'm very impressed. Uh, it's, it's, you know what? Because I used to, back in law school days, I would always use those, remember the four colored pens that had it, right? So it's like rule of law, facts, like you would break it all down. And, and I was really hoping I had more colors, but I only had two. So I wasn't able to be as specific with. Well, it was good. You didn't have red and blue. So it was, it, they're neutral colors. So there's no, there's no partisanship to your, to your no, and, and I really did appreciate that about this. And, and I definitely want to get into that, but I actually think that I want to start from in the, the end, because um, when you bring up like how COVID really highlighted and really brings home all of these failures. And then, you know, we could break it down. I mean, you specifically talk about, you know, schools and you talk about like um, the micro micro enterprises and, and all the methods, but just the ultimate failure at um, how privatization has been for us as a civilization and what that really looks like. Um, in real time because of COVID. And I just thought that was really interesting way to, to sum it up. Oh, well, thank you so much. And one of the things that was, that was really interesting about working on this project is I started it in 2014. And it's been amazing what sort of happened in the last eight years, really. But one of the things was that, that what's, ha what's really occurred in the last, I guess, two to three years has only sort of proven many of the points um, that I was making in the book. So the Democratic Party, I think, has changed in many ways, but many of those changes have actually been due to some of these deeper these deeper issues. And I think that I definitely think the pandemic has illuminated and the, the, the other crises that actually have emerged from it, um, including the economic crises, the um, and I guess of the health crises have really illuminated the sort of lack of uh viable social safety net. That is one of the things that's the result of um, decades of democratic disinvestment. 
Um, one thing that I noticed repeatedly, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. And, and I think that you're very generous with how you, you approach the Democrats as if like, there's a few times where it's like, um, there was a genuine belief of the power of the market and private sector. Like you give them the benefit of the doubt that they really believed that this would benefit um, vulnerable people, that they really believed that. Whereas I am a lot more skeptical. Like I, I actually don't think they ever really cared one way or the other about that. They just found niches for all their friends to profit in the private sector. I think that's a really common view and one that in certain places I, I agree with. But I think that that was the sort of the prevailing belief about especially this this sort of brand of Democrats, both by, I think, by the um, the left and the right. And so one thing I really wanted to show, especially to people on the left, was to sort of understand that, that this was taken seriously. And it's not the same thing. And there's, I think there's just often this argument that sort of everything that the, particularly the Clintons did was just a pragmatic effort to win elections. Um, and I wanted to show, I mean, I think that that's true in some, in some ways, but that they did really believe in these ideas and that it didn't just come from a kind of, you know, something of a sort of convenience. Or I think that the common way it gets often talked about is this idea of triangulation, which is a belief, which is a the strategy that um, Clinton adopted in the 1986 election. It was um, it was formulated by um, the famed Dick Morris, um, with, which is the idea of sort of stealing the ideas of the right. Um, and so you can see that through things like welfare reform and other kinds of policies and this idea of like sort of taking the right to win, to ideas of the right to win. And what I want to show is actually that that's not the best way to think about this, that they did really believe that a lot of these ideas could do something and that you could use the private sector and the market to do good. So one of the things that actually, as you brought up, that um, the book sort of documents the failures in that approach. Um, but I think it's really important to understand the intent behind it and the the faith that this this actually could work, because that only proves the um, reinforces like why it's it's deeply problematic that they were so fit. They, they were they did fail in the ways that they did. And I and there is even if let's say I were to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, sure, you had all the best intentions. The, the level of like condescension and elitism that I just get in general from the majority of the policies that they were wanting to put in, all of them, um, you know, that whole, not just personal responsibility mentality, but very much so like the best way to live is home ownership and investments and, and giving people access to the stock market and, you know, just very condescending and very, um, you know, Eurocentric white. No, but just very, you know, and, and not realistic in any way in terms of what people really needed. Yeah, I think it's a very middle white middle class view of and of what would work. And I think there's one of the reasons that that's actually why it's been it's caught on in various different ways. I mean, I think a lot of these are really appealing ideas. So in the book, I look extensively at something like microenterprise and microfinance, and that had a huge valence beyond and in the tech sectors. You can see it in charter, charter schools, another example of that, too. So why particular kinds of people believe in this approach? Um, it's based on their worldview. And so I think there's it's not there's parts of it that are condescending, but it's also the view. It's the sort of idea of like, I I did this. It worked for me. So you, it's a there's a, a faith of merit of meritocracy that's behind a lot of these types of policies. And I think that's one of the things that doesn't um, that doesn't work. So the market and sort of private sector solutions can did work for certain kinds of the population. And we saw huge increases um, 
in private wealth being amassed and corporate wealth being amassed of the 1990s, which is sort of the other side of the coin of a lot of these policies. But at the same time, it's not the best solution to solve if you're really trying to solve poverty and inequality and help poor people in need. A lot of these kinds of programs um, don't necessarily work. And I'll say one other thing about them. They a lot of them are not bad ideas in and of themselves. So I think it's fine. I mean, so one of the things I look at extensively is these microenterprise programs, which is trying to help um, poor, primarily women of color, um, start their own businesses. That could be fine. I mean, I think that that's a fine idea. Um, the problem is that it doesn't work. It can't replace welfare. And I think that a lot of that those types of approaches don't work if you don't have a robust social safety net and social welfare system. And so the idea that you'd replace that program with um, you'd replace like a, the existing social welfare system with these. That's really where it fa- where it falters. I think also, um, and we've talked about this before, this sort of presumption that everybody wants to have their own business, that everybody wants to own a small business, that everybody wants to run a business is just, it's a fallacy. A lot of people really just want to get a job and have a job that pays a living wage. And I think that a lot of these policies there's an intersection between what they're doing and them also killing labor in the process. Like it's almost like, okay, if you're only going to be promoting small entrepreneurial um, business ventures, uh, what about people that just want to get a job? Uh, So, I mean, I, and they really gutted labor as well. Like this seems to all have be, be simultaneously happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the critical components of it. So it's something with the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurship program or micro entrepreneurship. And I can give a sort of specific example to think about this. Um, in the 1980s, the Clintons brought to Arkansas Muhammad Yunus, who's the founder of Grameen Bank, um, which is sort of seen as the, the, um, the person in tra- sort of uh, what is the inventor of microfinance. And th- there's there's questions about how well microfinance works in Bangladesh, but the assumption that sort of, ever, as you said, that everyone in rural Arkansas would want to start their own business in communities that had actually lost um, most of their manufacturing bases. So they'd had factories there that, that had moved overseas as part of globalization. What they found actually is that people didn't want to be their own bosses. That they liked working having a job where they had stability, they had social, they had benefits um, and all of those types of things um, were, were sort of eliminated. And I think that that's the other kind of key piece of this is that you're seeing um, one thing that I found is over the, the this focus on um, especially kind of getting people new economy jobs. So tech, finance tr- and trade and sort of jobs that are related to trade those are all um, non-unionized sectors. So there's a way that this also prefigures the, a shift in the Democratic Party away from those those types of sectors, but then those jobs just going away. And so I do think it's a way of sort of profoundly weakening labor. Another place you see that is around charter the promotion of charter schools um, and the ways in which those, those work to weaken um, both just the sort of fundamental labor, labor, but also the base, the Democratic Party's connections to the labor movement. And I think the labor movement has been severely decimated, not just as a result of the policies that were enacted initially under Reagan, but I really think a lot of what happened in the Clinton years, particularly with NAFTA and normal trade relations with China, is really what set this thing in motion and really put us uh, behind the eight ball. The question now, because obviously there's been a major, what you would call, I mean, it's obviously in its early stages, but there's been a major labor resurgence in this country on the left. And I, I trace a lot of that to Bernie Sanders, two presidential runs, but we're seeing now um, the effects of people unionizing at Starbucks, at uh, 
you know, obviously trying to do some stuff with Amazon, which was obviously huge what Chris uh, Smalls was able to do in Staten Island. I still think that Walmart is the eye of the hurricane. I think that they are the Mm -hmm. corporation that needs to be unionized completely. Uh, How do you see the labor movement going forward and sort of bringing the Democratic Party back to the roots of FDR, JFK and LBJ? Well, I think it's it's really fundamental, and there's a lot of a lot of research that's been shown, or sort of and history proves that the Democratic Party itself is strongest when it when it has a strong labor movement behind it. But I think it's also not just about kind of winning elections, um, and that's kind of critical, but actually getting policies that help um, working people and but help everybody. And so there's often a thing that even if you know one of the things that happens is even if um, a small sector unionizes that can actually affect the entire the entire industry in powerful ways, and I think forces will force um, Congress and other places to take action. So I think it's it's fundamental to have a strong labor movement um, for going forward, both for the kind of rebuilding of a democratic, a stable democratic party coalition, but also for building up policies that bring sort of fundamental fairness. And one of the things I do think that's happened is um, there was a period where the Democratic Party, I mean in the two thousand the to the first two decades of the two thousands barely even mentioned labor. I mean I, I noticed this at the twenty um the twenty sixteen convention, even Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders did not bring up um, labor in any kind of convention speech, or it was it was just not part of the kind of the kind of conversation. And I do think the Democrats are starting to pay more lip service to the, the labor movement. Biden has brought it up routinely. I don't know if there's, we'll see if policies actually go to kind of strengthening labor. And there's a lot of ways, if you look through the platform, there's, it's talked about, but I do think that's sort of fundamental to helping the Democratic Party going forward. So I'm a strong advocate of that approach. We're speaking with Lily Geismer, author of Left Behind, The Democrats Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. You know, to me, as we often say on our podcast, the the great equalizer is corporate special interest money. When the Democratic Party decided that they were, I mean, from my perspective, I mean, I know I was young at the time, but I really feel that it wasn't this whole, wow, Reagan is so successful, we have to move to the right. It's wow, Reagan has gotten so much money and the Republicans are doing so well. We want that cash. And so they basically abandon unions and embrace Wall Street banks. And I feel that that's more or less where we are today. And that's why we don't have the policies in place, whether it is a living wage, universal health care, we need a robust uh, you know, climate infrastructure uh, type of initiative right now that would obviously change the economy drastically in a very good way. But to me, I think it really just comes down to corporate special interests completely engulfing the Democratic Party as it has the Republican Party. I think it's a little bit more complicated if you go to kind of what the if you actually think about what the Clintons were advocating for. So that might be there might be results that that's sort of what happened. But I think if you look back and you can look at it through their um, the financial what's called financial modernization by financial deregulation, uh, the kind of processes that we we shorthand with Glass-Steagall. One of the arguments that the the Clinton administration made is that they were sort of they were making the economy more competitive, that kind of giving. And this goes it it does fall in line with this idea of kind of particular kinds of investment. But if you could kind of what they called modernize the financial services industry, that would help um, that would help the average working person. It would sort of help give more sort of opportunities to consumers. It would bring more competition. And I think it's proven that that's not the case, but that actually was the logic behind it. So I don't think it was just about kind of trying to kind of help special interests or help, you know, help their friends on, on corporations. I think they actually did believe that this could help, could help people. 
um, in various different ways. And this would help the average person. And I think this is the question, like the argument that I often get from kind of the, the centrist New Democrats pushed back on my book is that, um, and this is the classic argument, the 90s, that like the economy was doing really well by the end of the 90s. Overall growth was really good. It's just the question that like it increased inequality. And that's really where, where the problems lie. And it led to much of the kind of instability that then gets borne out with the financial crisis. And I think we've seen in the last decade. So I do think, but I do think it is important to think about where the intent lay. And I don't think I mean, one of the things I really want to, to challenge is this is often the argument, which I think you just gave out, you just laid out, that the Clintons and Reagan are, are the same. And so, I mean, and there's a way you can say, you know, Clinton fulfilled many of the things that Reagan set out to do. So the things we associate with Reagan actually were were passed under Clinton. It would be that welfare reform, be that Glass-Steagall, crime bills. I mean, all of the kinds of things, those are sort of particular Reagan things. But I do think that there was a distinction that meant that the Democrats under in the Clinton years and the new Democrats or the Democratic Leadership Council, they really saw the ways in which they were still trying to kind of help people. And I'm not trying to defend their state. This is not me sort of apologizing for them. It's more to actually understand the logic because I think it's really powerful. And I think it's still, I think it still runs through the Democratic Party today. So it's important to kind of think about that, what they think they're doing through a lot of those kinds of policies that we've seen sort of help, we've seen help people. And I think absolutely there was a way of saying, you know, that we're getting, we're getting creamed on um, the amount of money that's being given to Republicans and we need to figure out a way to do that. But many of that was to help kind of fulfill a particular kind of governing logic that they believed in. Yeah. I mean, I, I see that for some people possibly, but there's so many people that came in and just really what we, what we have is the profitization of essential societal functions that should not ever be for-profit industries. And once you introduce a profit motive, it's really all credibility is out the door. So even if you have like the best intentions, the fact that your friend and your sister-in-law and so-and-so and your insider trading and you're making money on this contract and that for this, you know, charter school business or whatever housing development you're giving a contract to, it's, the, the, the appearance of impropriety to me is, is such that really I don't need to give anybody the benefit of the doubt because it, it just doesn't look good. You know, I mean, and you, when you talk about it in housing and you talk about it in education and all of these things that have been taken over as profit models and it's just not working. Yeah. And I told, I completely agree with that. I and mean, I think there's a piece of it that um, this idea that you could kind of use the private sector. So that goes to the book looks a lot of this sort of logic of doing well by doing good. And that's the idea that you kind of um, you give you give companies the opportunity to help address kind of problems of poverty. And so I look at a lot of these kind of a, a variety of different programs that the Clinton administration passed um, that have been in the works for a long time. But I think that there is this way that a lot of these sectors, and I think housing and education are critical to this, should not be should not be under the domain of the private sector. So part of what happens over the course, and I think this is actually critical to thinking about that is something that was slightly different than what was going on under Reagan, but I think we've so seen today, is this kind of bleeding of the public and private together um, in ways that does bring in these kind of different kinds of profit orientations to sectors that should not be um, should not be seen as under the guise of the private sector. And I think education is really, really central to that, as is housing. So one of the things I, I'm coming... Um, I'm in California um, and in Los Angeles, which is dealing with a major housing crisis. But a lot of that comes from kind of bringing in um, the private sector into thinking about housing. So this de the, the, de the real depletion of 
any kind of public housing options, which has been the way the dominant kind of um, approach in the United States since the 1970s. And that that is really becomes deeply, deeply problematic and leads to kind of serious um, serious inequities that we have we see and we're and we're living with every day. Yeah, I I was very obviously um, the the housing projects in different places are obviously worse than others. And when you when you got into talking about Cabrini Green and um, the other projects in Chicago, so I lived there for a little while and I know the concrete wall, like I know what that looks like. And yeah, those were just prisons. They were just pri- they were pre prison prisons essentially. Um, and somehow the Democrats sort of offered like, we're going to make it pretty. We're going to make it better. We're going to do all of these things to fix it for you. But then they put all of these means testing and all of these sort of rules that you had to jump through that how many of the people were actually able to take advantage of that, that were shoved out of their original housing. You know, so it's like they, they wanted to help them, but then they added all these hoops that everyone had to jump through. Um, to get that help. So, I mean, to me, that doesn't seem that helpful. No, it's not. And I think it's been devastating. And a lot of those kinds of these types of mixed income approaches that led to those types of policies also coupled with um, really punitive um, uh, policies around crime and incarceration, which precluded anyone, if you had been convicted of a crime or um, had a relative who convicted of a crime that eliminated you from having access to public housing, right. and so turning it into kind of a right to a right to a war, but for a very very small group of people who, and this is the the kind of repeated language of the Clinton era, which is the people who play by the rules. So it's rewarding a particular kind of poor person um, over others, and and often, and I looked at the book extensively. It's not just rewarding them; it's like celebrating those stories, so that you see this kind of routine celebration right. of a particular kind of 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 admirable poor woman of color who's worked really hard, that becomes kind of a a good poor person. And then it stigmatizes everybody else um, who can't, who for so many different reasons and so many structural reasons cannot play by the rules or the rules that are set up um, by the, um, who were set up basically by the Clinton administration. I think it's interesting, especially how often you mentioned in this book that um, they would rely on the anecdotes of meeting different people in these places and what success stories, somebody who is a former welfare recipient who is now doing great. But then if you followed up later when the economy wasn't exactly the same, those people were no longer doing so well. So, I mean, those stories seem very short lived that they used. Yeah, absolutely. And that's some of the, the some of the, the sort of the, the sort of very narrow ways and very narrow measures of what success is, but also not understanding. I mean, this goes to the kind of the bigger thing of kind of who who succeeds and who sets the rules. But one of the things is to not address that kind of there's so many other structural barriers um, to to help to helping people. And this goes back to the the. Um, the question around labor and wages, which I think is really critical in the Clinton welfare reform, which is which is really you know what the welfare system is today, which is the fact that it was actually also to help people get into explicitly non-unionized jobs. I mean, it was to help to get work in in um, in very kind of marginal um, and and entry level jobs in like the service industry, so in food services and th- and and health and childcare, which are not in healthcare, which are not d- traditionally um, unionized. And I think one of the things is those jobs never paid particularly well. 
But um, in the 90s, there was at least the economy was at least doing well. And there was huge layoffs, huge instability that goes on for, forever. But I think increasingly those just became they were not stable jobs to begin with, but they become increasingly unstable jobs. And so that's, I think, one thing looking to a job, place like Starbucks as a site for unionization, hopefully brings some kind of stability back into these, these sectors of the economy that have just been so wrought with instability and basically have people working, um, you know, who at, at a, at a be below a living wage. Right. I mean, well, that's what's so frustrating me about a lot of these policies is that it's saying, well, you got to have a job, you got to work, you got to work. And I and I think, okay, even let's say that that's reasonable, but then you need to have a jobs guarantee. And there was some mention in this that early on, it looked like in one of those pieces of legislation where Clinton was doing welfare reform and he was putting in like that two year finite number that there seemed to resemble something in that that looked like and if you can't get a job we'll provide one for you um it's if you're going to do a jobs guarantee and you're going to pay a living wage then i feel like the policies of requiring people to work are a lot more um meaningful like it's it's like you can want people to work but they're working three part-time jobs and they still can't live so and you're not providing, I mean, you're, because it was done at the state level, you're not providing them childcare. I mean, so that's a huge part too. So it's, I think it was the initial Clinton plan, and this is not to apologize for it at, at all, but was did have other social services attached to it. And that's part of the issue is what gets passed had very limited social services. So it's both a guarantee that even if you can't get a job, we'll help you or we'll help you find a job that pays a living wage, but also with like the sort of the social services um required such to help people. And one of the things is that many people were doing worse actually working than they would have been, they were under the old welfare system. And this is a, this is a kind of critical point too. And I think there's often this way that um, the other piece of this is that one of the arguments that, um, that I hear a lot about welfare is that, you know, the Republicans forced Clinton to do this. It was an election year. And, um, and it was basically, um, you know, and I think what happened was that the actual bill that was passed was there was a lot of compromises and a lot of things that the Clinton administration didn't initially want to do, but they'd always, and Clinton ran on the idea of ending welfare as we know it. And it was the idea of welfare to work was critical to his, um, his larger sort of political vision. And I think to speaks to the larger kind of shifts that have happened that did happen with the democratic party during that period. Yeah. And it's, and all of these are what you're talking about, like micro solutions to macro problems. And it's just, you know, you can have an anecdote of one person that had a good success story and maybe it works for a lifetime, but those are not the kinds of things that can really address these systemic problems and, and on a macro level. Uh, so, I mean, that's what I got out of this the most is just that the privatization is not serving the macro needs of our civilization. Well, it's wonderful to hear you got that. And that is the kind of critical message that I want people to understand is these you can't. And I think this goes a lot of a lot of what gets what's gets promoted are very micro solutions. Um, and w- what we're dealing with and what we've been dealing with really for the last 50 years, which is about a kind of restructuring of the American economy, are macro problems. Um, and so if you're trying to address issues of structural inequality, you cannot deal with them by bringing in by, in these kind of targeted micro Ways. I mean, even like small tax credits cannot solve the the macro problems that many people that that the vast it's not even many people it's the vast majority of Americans are are suffer are experiencing. So that is the kind of what I want to sort of have people think about um, and hopefully 
um, the book sort of gets them, gets it does. starts that process. <laughs> no, it does. And it also, it talks about where, where the slack is supposedly where we're, the neoliberal concept of where it should be being picked up is by corporations, self-regulating corporate for philanthropy, um, foundation philanthropy. And like, to me, I look at people like Bill Gates as extremely nefarious. And, and now we're in a situation where a lot of those people that are our corporate oligarchs are overseeing basically what should be public services because of their involvement with all of these private, privatized things that shouldn't be private. So, I mean, it's it's kind of scary to me a little bit. Well, and especially, I think, with this idea of kind of shrinking government, that so many government pro- practices have been sort of t- turned to the private sector, and that's part of what happened. But it 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 what I argue in the book and other people have looked at, too, is one of the things it really does is takes away any kind of democratic accountability, because at least with our politicians, we elect them. I mean, so and that's an idea yeah. that the demo, that, that, that we that the people have a say, but like no one's elected Bill Gates. So the idea that the Gates Foundation has a role in kind of setting policy um, to me is really, really troubling and should be, should have um, be something that there's much more kind of outrage and attention to. But instead, I mean, has had a huge say, not just in education. And one thing I don't look at is healthcare and global health. And that's, those are places where there should be more accountability by the American public or the, uh, the chance to have that kind of accountability. Definitely agree. We're speaking with Lily Geismer, author of Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. You know, one of the, I I think maybe the most important closing topic, and we look at, you know, kind of how we are, where we are today. uh, I think a lot of that has to do with education. You're a professor at one of the most expensive colleges in the country. Granted, it is private, but we're obviously big advocates for tuition-free public college, the elimination of student debt, Um, If there was tuition-free public college, for example, at UCLA, uh, it would be a lot harder to justify $60,000 a year for a private liberal arts college, and they would have to compete. And so I think one of the byproducts of neoliberalism through the Reagan and Clinton years is the massive increase in costs for college. And part of the problem with that is this this, uh, over-bureaucratized institutions. I believe uh, Claremont, Scripps, uh, you know, schools like that, you know, there's maybe about 1,500 to 2,000 in the student body, but you could have uh, a dozen vice presidents making, you know, a quarter million dollars a year. And so when people are wondering, why does it cost so much to send our, our kids to these schools? And the teachers are not being paid well there, ladies and gentlemen. Don't think that they're making these crazy salaries. Right. That right. ain't happening. Uh, do you see that as being sort of a a flashpoint in many ways in terms of where we need to go in the future to solve a lot of these problems, especially economically? Oh, I think hugely. And I think the other piece that's sort of there too that links back to the the book and the the Democratic Party has been this promotion of education as the solution to all problems. So this pushing of, I mean, one of the things I think that, you know, since the 70s, the Democrats have, the mainstream Democrats is um, have pushed the idea of kind of worker retraining. So the idea of like, it's okay that your job is being sent out. You can just like go become a tech worker. And so that I think of it with like the, um, the coal, mine, you know, coal miners and coders like that, that, but there's, there's so many variations of that, that has, that, that has been pushed. And the, but the other side of that is that, that it's critical to everyone to get a college education. And that has then pushed colleges to be able to sort of sell that in various different ways. And I think there's many benefits to a college education, but I do think that the ways in which it has created just profound debt 
um, in mass pop parts of the population. And I do think one of the key things to deal with inequality in the United States is just to cancel the student debt. And that's something that can be done, has, can be done without, without the, without Congress. That isn't, that is an executive action. So that, that's one piece of it, but I do think there's going to be, I mean, there's a reckoning that's happening with college. The other piece of it to, to talk about, I'm fortunate to be a tenured professor, um, but I am a dying, dying breed. I mean, so, so, so many, the places that when we think about contingent work, a huge component of that is, um, is within academia where many people are working, you know, getting paid about $3,000 a course to teach like five courses um, at met, at several different, in, you know, institutions. And that's happening at the public and private level. So I think that's a huge question about the sort of reckoning that's happened within colleges, but at the same time, what is being paid for now, I'm going to, um, but I, I thought about this a lot because of the sort of promotion of entrepreneurship, um, which is a part of, you know, the, the being your own boss, which is like, that's going to sort of save the new economy and it can work with um, low income workers. That's also there's, that's actually where a lot of money is going is these centers for entrepreneurship. Um, and so there's paying of administrators to do that kind of work. And I think there's a whole, that, that there's just a huge way that that is sort of a bloat on um, both our education system and our economy. Yeah. One of the things that I, I thought was interesting and i never thought of it this way when you were talking about sort of back on the education issue. So at the same time, when the Republicans were pushing vouchers, is when the Democrats were pushing charters. And it seemed like at the time, I remember at the time, it seemed so obvious that charters was a better idea than vouchers. Like it was so obvious to me. And now it's, they're both sort of branches of the same problem. I like, like they're both doing the same thing essentially, which is siphoning money from the public schools just in different ways. And yet the Democrats were able to sell this as if it was some sort of, you know, like, you know, good liberal education policy. Yeah, well, the idea is it was sort of making, it was bringing more efficiency and making things more competitive and sort of more accountable. And I think, I mean, it's not one of the things that, you know, initially that idea for charter schools actually came from, from um, Albert Schenker was the head of the American Federation for Teachers. So I think there's a, the way that it came from actually many teachers being like, this would give us a chance to kind of experiment. So there's not there that at its kernel, there's, you know, at the beginning of its sort of origins um, are some of those ideas, but they have been used in various different ways. And now you have large school systems, you know, like this is LA is a classic example where there's um, with a high number of charters that actually don't have the same kind of accountability that um, that the typical public school does and and often are being run by private by these private entities. Yeah, for profit. And and one one of the things that's interesting here in Florida is that we actually have a charter school in Broward County that's called Pembroke Pines Charter and it's run by the municipality and it isn't as a profit. And the result is it's an amazingly good charter school. It actually is a really good charter. And in fact, it's really one of the only ones that I know of that is a really good school. And I think that that really speaks volumes that it's the one that isn't from a for-profit corporation. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> and I think that if, if you were to look at it from the perspective of, and everyone is like, well, if only our states were more blue and this would solve the problem, <laughs> you're in the bluest one of them all. And it looks like there is a really high cost of living in California that's making it near impossible for anyone to survive. And of course, in Los Angeles, or San Francisco, it goes without saying, it really is impossible to survive on a middle-class income. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think that's another, I mean, that is, that, that is something that actually, um, I wrote another book about suburban liberals in Massachusetts. And so the ways in which the kind of bluest states often have the highest amounts of inequality and um, racial segregation too is, um, is something I think that is really important to think through as well. And that um, we can see that writ large, actually in large, large questions about kind of democratic party, both strategy and policy. So, um, so I do think that one of the things with California is like the ways in which kind of its blueness has obscured some of these just sort of persistent problems of inequity are something that um, I see playing out every day. So I, yeah. I, I know I know California and Florida are now in some sort of weird, <laughs> our governors are in some weird battle, but the problems in both places constitute and. It, yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I think it shows that it's it doesn't even matter red or blue. I think that it would like we have serious housing issues. You have serious housing issues. Our climate issues are not being addressed properly. Neither are yours. So it's just interesting. Uh, Newsom shut down the state for the pandemic, and DeSantis had everything open, and yet apparently the numbers have borne out in the after effect as being kind of the same. So I just I think it's kind of interesting that we're really seeing that there there really is no difference in this color war. Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think that there are certain issues that that doesn't always play out. And I think I've right. shown that. But I do think on a lot of these questions around um, around economic inequity, right. you absolutely it absolutely it, you absolutely the the, um, the sort of coloration is different. It doesn't have the same power that it's often purported to. Yeah. Well, I really think and, and this gets back to the whole idea of, you know, what type of a society do we want? And my idea has always been that it is the philosophy of Thomas Jefferson, which is when the people fear the government, there is tyranny. When the government fears the people, there is liberty. And I believe that that is more or less where we have to go in terms of the, the way this gets done. And I think the best example that I saw recently, and I don't see enough people talking about it, is the women's right to choose uh, decisions that were made in both Kansas and Indiana. In Kansas, the people were allowed to vote on the issue and they voted pretty overwhelmingly in yeah. favor of, of in such a red state, overwhelmingly yeah. for women's right to, to choose. Whereas in Indiana, the state legislature decided. So like many instances, kind of like when, and I, and I always use this as a prime example when it comes to where are we electorally, when Bernie and Hillary ran in 2016, when it came to the union endorsement, anytime it was a rank and file vote, went to Bernie every time. Whenever it was a board vote, mm -hmm. it went to Hillary every yes. time. I think the mm -hmm. more people realize that whether it's an issue like CalCare and you want to push forward these major uh, policy changes that we absolutely need, to me, I think ballot initiatives, I think things of that nature is what is going to sort of right the ship. Do you sort of see it the same way? Yeah, I think on a lot of I think that there are a lot of issues, and I think you can see the other side of um, this is one, and this gets slightly tangential, but in California, with a lot of things that shouldn't be brought to the voters. I mean, so that it also uh, um, through, the refer ref through the referendum system have, and so there's the sort of certain kinds of policies that get sort of twisted and distorted. But on the whole, I think that there's a way that kind of that it is a critical way to kind of restore um, accountability, um, especially in states um, that have so gerrymandered both their their legislature in particular ways um, that kind of hearing what the voters have to say is really, really critical. I think another kind of key piece actually is at the same time to that dichotomy is also restoring faith um, for 
Americans in government, um, that the hostility to government has been so strong. And so I think one thing of, you know, bringing back a kind of popular faith that there is a lot of things like housing, like having, you know, pushing the federal government to, to and, and believing that the federal government could could address kind of the, credit, the, the problems of housing in the United States would actually go a long way as well. Definitely agree. Lily, we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast this evening. Thank Obviously, you. we know you got to run in a minute. If there is anything that you would like to plug or mention before plug. you go, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, no, thank, I'm, th- I'm so thankful for the opportunity. And thank you for accommodating me. I have to, um, my own childcare crisis, I'm having to go pick up my, my children from their first day of, um, of school. So that was oh, like, um, really? but, I, um, but I'm really grateful to you for having me on. And I, um, I just think I'm grateful for you for engaging with me and with my book. So I hope thank everyone so goes out and reads it. No, and we even, and, and I even told Jen right before we went on the air and she's like, you know, how is it that, uh, this book is going to have uh, an impact with the necessary crowd. And it's simple. Um, liberals in the burbs and in the urban cities, they like to read books. And <laughs> a professor at a liberal arts college in Los Angeles is writing a book, even if it is one that they may not necessarily like the title of, there is the reasonable chance they're going to read it anyway, just so they can see exactly what you said so they can come back at you. But I have a feeling that a lot of them are going to read it and it's going to give them pause and think, yeah, maybe we have to uh, course correct in a big way. Yeah. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Lily. It was nice to meet you. Have a great nice evening, Lily. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. So I would say that that was a. I do. And I, and she was, she was lovely. And I do want to say again, like this was cool because this was the first time I did the audio book and simultaneously was like taking notes in the actual book, but it wasn't her. So I'm just saying it was a very kind of very refined, very well-spoken woman. You hear that, Lana? So if you are planning on doing the audio, you have to keep that in mind. It's not, it's not her, but it's fine. I mean, like I didn't know her before, so it didn't really matter to me. It wouldn't be like if I went to go read something by like Nina and it was somebody else talking. Paul, great to see you, Steve, as well. Great point. Because as we saw in Kansas, it's not like they voted for Democrats. No. They voted red like they always do. But they decided on a single issue they were going to vote a certain way. And imagine that. Imagine a conservative state that said, I do. We will vote on a specific issue. I, I do imagine that. And I would like to point out this is not a Republican problem. There are very many red people that are pro-choice and at a minimum do not believe in criminalization of abortion. But you know what I think that the average American would agree on, especially with how ridiculous the Democrats are when it comes to spending money? Uh, $80 billion would have covered the child tax credit for another year. But instead, they decided that we're going to spend $80 billion on the IRS because that makes a lot of sense. Because, you know, they always go after the biggest tax cheats, which are the rich. You know, to me, it, it just sort of speaks volumes to sort of this like disconnect in many ways. Uh, are we going to wait to do anything until after? No, we're going to do it now. Which part are you going to do? Are you going to do this story time? I think. Or do you want me to talk about my thing? Uh, let's talk. Let's talk. We, we, this is going to take a little while, and we've got about a little less than twenty minutes. So okay. let's uh, let's talk about um, the main topic at hand, which of course is the one that we were uh, looking to address uh, this evening. Okay. Um, we're going to have a story time. The 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 old crone don't want to leave. Okay, so we are going to read an excerpt from Les Miserables Crones. Les Miserables Crones. Damn. Tales of Entitled Bitter Women. And we have an excerpt. Oh, she just cannot help herself. This woman. 
God. Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. Ugh. We are not, we do not have the time to have a theoretical debate about a policy that will never, ever never. come to pass. Never. Imagine that. Uh, so that's for, a miserable crone right there. So for those of you who have been paying attention, and I'm sure you have, uh, Hillary Clinton decided once again to rear her head <laughs> and why somebody felt the need that they had to get a comment from her regarding Elizabeth Warren's article in Politico this past Love week. It. No, it has to do, but I think she, she released a book. She no, no, released no. a book. Uh, Hillary did that talks about something about this. Yes. She released oh, a book. She did and I didn't even That's that. what I'm saying. Okay, That's why she's possible. rearing her head. She released a book and in the book it references this conversation with Elizabeth Warren, wherein Hillary said, yeah, I believe that. He, I know he says things like that about people, or I know how he talks about women. Like, as if that's just the thing Bernie does. Yeah, Bernie's a real misogynist. The well, it all started with Elizabeth Warren saying that, uh, you know, I heard people telling me that if I simply had a penis, they would vote for me. It's like, I'm sorry, but when people she's a liar. When people come she's after a Warren, liar. and everyone's like, "Oh, why are you picking on Elizabeth Warren?" She's a liar. Like, she kind of brings it on herself. She's a liar. Like, why would you even say that? Bernie specifically approached her and wanted her to run. He wanted her to run in 2016. He didn't want to do that. He wanted her to do that. So why would he want somebody to run that he didn't think was capable of doing that? So she's a liar. Great point, Jen. Just wanted to point that out there. Arizona, very red. So, well, it's a, it's a purple state. I mean, be fair about that. Um, but yeah, you get a ballot initiative and that Because makes sense. most people in both parties support populist ideas. That's correct. And right now we're just seeing what's happening with a government run by a, a minority. Which is all the more reason why people want to peg Bernie and Trump supporters as being equals and being vile. And the reality is, and again, we've been to a Trump rally. Are there vile Trump supporters there? Absolutely. Okay. And they are a very small part of who shows up. Very. So you can assume that everyone's like that. And yet I always found it interesting when the Nazis, if you will, showed up in Orlando and Tampa and how many of them were actually there? I don't know, 10? Because that makes up, you know, millions and millions of people. But it's so much juicier and it's so much more clickbaity. And um, yeah, so they they appreciate that. But it is, it, they want to believe that if we could just get rid of Trump and the MAGA people and those, and we could just get rid of them, everything would just be fine. Everything will just be, we can just go back to normal. Everything will be fine. But I don't think they realize that that's a very small percentage of the people. It's the, a very small group of people. Another reason we wanted to do this story about Hillary has a lot to do with the fact that obviously Trump's Mar-a-Lago got raided and rightfully so. He clearly was protecting classified information, which is a very big part of the equation for sure. But if we're being honest here, Hillary's, you want to call it ego, her hubris. Oh, knows no bounds. I, the <laughs> fact of the matter is, oh, this, this is this is a person who broke federal law in such an extraordinary way that she should have been disqualified from running for president in 2016. She set up a private server in her home for the purpose of doing business with the Clinton Foundation while she was the secretary of state. I find that interesting. You think she should be disqualified for running? I think she should be in prison. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not going to dispute that prison. either. Do you know how much money went through the Clinton Foundation, ladies and gentlemen? $3 billion. Do you know who was the top donor? of the Clinton Foundation. 
the Saudi royal family, much like Trump does business with the Saudis. Right, but the Clintons are so holy. But, the, so, but, the, but the, when the Clintons oh God, do it, it's okay. All, it's all good. You know, can someone please differentiate for me the difference between the Clinton Foundation and money laundering? That's all. Just someone please, like if somebody could distinguish what the Clinton Foundation is from a, a typical money laundering operation, I'd be, I'd find that fascinating. You'd be careful with what you say there, Declan, because you're starting to give yourself away, buddy. Oh, I already know that that's Declan because he was already mocking my hairline, which I don't appreciate, by the way. It's not nice. I'm sure he could think of some shit. I'm just saying, you know, like, you know, you could talk about something a little bit more relevant. But what you have to remember also about Hillary is despite the things that she clearly did, which was against the law. And when she would joke about how you mean wipe my server with a cloth, when you do that, you see, again, it has to do with presentation. See, Trump is so crass and people just hate him. Except for the people that love that about him. Correct. So so it's it's like that, again, that Pied Piper strategy, let's find someone really uber offensive and disgusting that they have no chance of winning. All you're doing is baiting the uber offensive and disgusting people to come out of the woodwork. But the idea that Hillary wanted to sort of dance on Trump's grave and 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 not only that, but is selling merch saying, but her emails, you know, but her emails, you mean the emails that were illegal. And so the way that the conversation goes on social media is, yeah, my side committed crimes, but your side's crimes were worse. You know what I feel like, though, when you talk about Hillary with the emails, I kind of feel it reminds me of like the fact that Paul Newman won a best actor for Color of Money. It's like, really, that's what you're going to get her on is the emails. She's a war criminal. Like, there's saying that so Paul many Newman should have won the best actor for, uh, well, I guess he should have won for well, or the sting. You know. The hustler, yeah. but but neither here. That's what this is like. You to get her on the emails. That's like getting Al Capone on tax evasion. It's really very similar. But like, she shouldn't be disqualified. She should be in prison. Yeah. Uh, and there are people who say, "Well, how could you say such a thing, Jen? You're not, Jen, you're not a good Democrat. You're a you're a you're not a team player. You know what? What I'm is not wrong a good with Democrat. telling the truth? I'm a decent person. And this is part of the reason bringing the conversation full circle. Why Hillary Clinton hates Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders told the truth. And the way it is, much like in corruption in any industry, let's just take policing for example. If you're corrupt in a police, if if you're in a corrupt police department, but you are an honest actor. The other officers who are on the take don't look at you as somebody who, man, I wish I could be like him. No, their attitude is, who does he think he is thinking that he's not going to be on the take like us? Well, which is why I think that the good officers end up not really being able to survive in that kind of system. That's what they often say. I mean, well, that's what I would think. But that's why you need to eliminate qualified immunity. If you want policing to change in the United States, the only way it changes is when the police police the police. That's it. And if you eliminate qualified immunity, which takes the burden of misconduct within the police department away from the people who live within the county that they that they are enforcing and put it on the police themselves, they're not going to protect bad cops if that's going to affect their means to making a living or having a pension. Okay, can that's I, can I again change. suggest that we reallocate police funding to firefighters? Also, shout out to the Augusta Firefighters Department. You guys looked really cute in your truck. <laughs> <laughs> Augusta, Maine. Now, you know what? Considering that- the Just saying. Considering that the firefighters typically do better 
uh, in the in the in the firefighters versus police uh, softball oh games. Police wish they were as cool as firefighters. I'm I think sorry. there is something to that. I do think there is oh. something to this idea that police and the constant need to be involved in some type of uh, you know a life or death situation, whereas whereas firefighters are often involved in life or death situations, and it's not of their choosing. It's because life happens. Okay, uh, firefighters. I, for, first of all, we, I have firefighter fetish, <laughs> and really, it's it's a problem. But um, these are people that are as close to superheroes as you can get, and that to me is really cool. And they do it without guns. And I still, I'll go back to Uvalde. Firefighters would have gone in. They would have. The firefighters oh, would have gone in, and they wouldn't have even been armed, and they would have gone in because the mentality of someone who's a firefighter is so far beyond the mentality of someone who goes into law enforcement. Like it's just they're they're not even the same. Like it's so far far off. But yeah, I think we should take some of the money from the police and allocate it to the firefighters so that they don't have to like be cutting their pensions and all other sorts of stuff. Yeah. And again, uh, and they can make more calendars. Also shout out to yeah. the Australian firefighters on uh, Instagram. <laughs> you guys are really, really cool. Yeah. Well, uh, if, if Jen ever gets if Jen ever gets caught with with, with another man, it will definitely be a fire firefighter. firefighter. Yeah, that is for sure. <laughs> But Hillary Clinton. If I hang out at enough station. Yeah, I know you need yourself in trouble. Well, mm. whatever. Well, if Jen ever ran for office again, whatever it would take to get the firefighter endorsement, that's that's basically. Oh, I would do that for anything. Yeah. I would do that for free. <laughs> Love me, firefighters. They're oh. the coolest, really. They like you. It wasn't that they didn't oh, like you or didn't want to support you. I it's know. that there's a there's a there's a big deal in Broward politics in terms of. Uh, I guess what you would call political maneuvering that political decides maneuvering. is uh, judge, jury, judge, jury, and executioner. It's an AFL-CIO problem. But yeah. what was something interesting in this book that I took specific note of that I wanted to show you that I thought was really kind of that what she mentioned in here that I thought was very um, poignant was about how when thing, one of the reasons that things started to go bad was the merger of the AFL and CIO. And that was when that started becoming a monstrosity that really stopped always being in the best interest of labor. It was very interesting. Of all the things I don't have, a, do I not have a tag on that? How is that possible? Yeah. So that was one of the things that I thought was, and we've seen that here. We've seen that when you get, like, I'll always say I stand with labor. I'm always going to stand with labor. But the unions are not always acting in the best interest of their rank and file. That's just a fact. They're not. They're not acting in their best interest when they don't offer screenings to the candidates that are more pro-labor. That's not acting in the best interest of your rank and file. And so it's hard to be supportive of unions when you know that some of the management of those unions are the way they are. Well, and again, and- that gets back to, you know, the way that they endorsed during, you know, when Bernie ran for president, uh, especially in 16, you know, the rank and file, when they had their say, that's when Bernie was able to really make a huge inroad within the labor movement. And unfortunately, because of the way things were, uh, the way that the, the corporatization of so many of these unions, yeah. when the, when it was the, you know, what you would call the executive board, if you will, that got to decide how these endorsements go down. It just goes to show you that they don't have the best interests of their workers at heart. They just don't. No, they no. get corrupted like anything else. And, and, oh, here it is. 
this is basically in the minds of many, however, the merger of the two largest unions in the 1950s made organized labor another bloated bureaucratic institution. Which it is today even more that, so. I just thought and then you add in the factor of having right to work laws like we have here in Florida. It makes it that much more difficult for labor, especially unions, to make to take a stand. And I, but I also think that that's also not an, it's not that it's an excuse, but it certainly allows a certain amount of complacency from union leadership because there really isn't that much they can do. That's true. So it's it's kind of easy. So what you see is they blame the Republicans. The Republicans blame, I don't know, the immigrants, whoever they're blaming. It's totally the Mexicans. Yeah. They're totally terrible. That's people. what. That's why you're not getting a job is because the the poor people coming over desperate for their lives from like Honduras. And that's the see, problem. And you're seeing it happen right now in real time. So because so many workers in this country are fed up with these massive corporations never paying a living wage, no universal health care, their attitude is, you know what. I know my worth and I know you need me. So you know what they're going to do? This is where the immigration question is going to become very controversial. They are going to open the floodgates and they are going to do amnesty again for a massive amount of immigrants to come into this country to take menial jobs and work for shit wage. That's what's going to happen. So for anybody who thinks that, oh, we just have to let everybody into the country and that's just going to make it better. No, it's not going to make it better. It's going to make it worse. Because we do not have labor laws in this country that stand on their own. OK, but, but but you can't frame it like that because well, or we can't like I have a very different position on immigration that I'm doesn't involve that it, rejecting people that are desperate or turning people away or incarcerating them for just coming here or anything. That's that a is whole just, other story. I, I definitely okay, agree. So, on that. so when you say turning people away, it's just to me, it's just. Why can't people just be kind about this? And, and there's no logic there's or been, reason because, involved. Because there's, there's money to be made. Well, right. But there's no logic or reason. It's not like anybody could show me a correlation between be right immigrants back. and crime. In fact, it's the opposite. That's completely up. There is no sound reason for, the re, uh, for why we treat immigrants in the way that we treat them. Other than, yeah, I think it's a profit motive. And then that feeds what they do is they use that sort of hate, that fear, that punching down, that whole mentality, the othering, and it's disgusting. So I'm never going to like any sort of policy that is mean to people that are just trying to come here and have a decent life. It's just, I'm never going to support any kind of policy that's mean. And I think that what we do is mean, and I don't like that at all. So, you know, I'm not for open borders. I think that you need to have a process, but can't they stay in like nice dorms if they need a place to stay and until they get on their feet? Like, do we, you know, or is that not profitable enough to the private prison and private detention center sector that makes so much money per head per day at immigration detention facilities? Because to me, I think that we could do better. I think we could actually provide better housing for our, for everybody. Um, and I, I was thinking of that, you know, like the best way to solve the houseless problem, because that's what it is. You know, friend of the show, Jordan Cheriton has spent a lot of time on the on the path and on the beat and talking to people that are in this housing crisis and that are just so struggling right now in this economic hellscape. And they're not homeless because your home is sort of like where your people are, right? I mean, they might be with their people. They're houseless. Literally, they just need a house. So I think the best thing we can do for people that are, that are houseless is to give them houses. That, that's my brilliant idea. 
we're, we're, and if you do that, then we'll reduce houselessness because we'll give the people houses. I know it's crazy. I know it's just a wacky, wacky idea. And I'm not suggesting, oh, I have such issue after this, this author came oh, out tonight look, with you. you know, uh, oh, I can't with you. Let me be the first to say that I know you've been talking about Hillary this evening. Oh, and, uh, and you. I just thought, well, I had to get away for a while. Where'd you go uh, to Epstein's Island? We're not going to talk about that. That's uh, I did not actually go to that island, so do not blame me for anything that went down over there. You know, I'm still innocent, right? Innocent until proven guilty, and I have never been. And that's convicted. how you all treated Epstein: innocent until proven guilty. Well, he can't or, be. Or, or he can't be convicted of anything anymore. How you guys treat Julian anymore. Assange? Who? Julian Assange. I don't know that name. I've never heard of that guy before. Yeah. but I'm sure. He's well, your wife person. wanted to go nuke him. Uh, my wife wants to nuke a lot of people, but Hillary, unfortunately, has just been in a really bad mood lately. And when I mentioned that, you know, maybe Bernie doesn't deserve all of the blame. You missed pro- you missed this. No, well, maybe no, we should I show you this. Oh, God. I, one Hillary okay. enough. I don't have and to look at five. Look at that. Don't angry make, and miserable no, in no, every I color. I, don't, I, don't I, I made like five. a rainbow assortment of angry Hillary's. No, that is really. listen. It's what? very unfortunate. And by the way, I didn't even take the ugly pictures. There are ugly pictures. I just took angry pictures. One Hillary is enough. I don't need five. Please take that away. <laughs> I can only take so much. But I just wanted to come on here and say that you know, for all of you people that support Bernie Sanders, uh, I sympathize. I understand that you really like the guy, but um, I will tell you that Hillary just, uh, she can't let it go. And when I asked her nicely the other day to just kind of, you know, ease up on the whole Bernie trash, and <laughs> she beat the hell out of me <laughs> and started throwing things at me. So I had to leave and come to the studio and say hi to Jen. I've been, I've been, been after Jen for a while, so and, but she just doesn't seem to give in to the old slick willy charm. Uh, I'm going to keep trying, though. Maybe one of these days it'll work. Um, but remember, we still run the country and we still run the Democratic Party. It is Clintonism forever. As yeah. Long as I'm alive, so this is a good opportunity for me to bring out. So I was recently in Salem, Massachusetts, and I bought a couple of hex candles. Isn't that where the vampires are from? No, it's witches. Oh, and right, right, and right, right. I have two specific ones. Well, you know, this Hillary one is for protection. Too. This one's protection. You might want to like that and, now. And this one is for true justice. And Ooh, I just thought those two seem right. And so to me, in the world of true justice, you and your wife would be in prison. So that that's that's sort of what I'm working on here, I mean, but protection, me, but true justice. I'm going I'm to level with you all and tell you why Hillary and I have never gone to prison. This is an exclusive. Yeah, this is very special. No, killed I'm all t- the witnesses. Well, no, that's actually oh, not true. Okay. Now, the reason why we never went to prison is quite simple. We passed the 94 crime bill. We made the police so powerful. We made the prison industrial complex so powerful, so rich. You really think they would ever bite the hand that feeds them? No, never. They could never do such a thing. They owe a debt to us that uh, they'll be paying off for the rest of their lives. That's why we were able to run the foundation with no problem. Uh, the biggest problem, of course, was Bernie. You know, he started bringing it up and uh, that just kind of exposed our whole operation. So uh, maybe I should take my my words back and remind Hillary that, yeah, Bernie is the biggest problem. And uh, if we only just didn't have to deal with him, maybe yeah, we'd still be sitting high on the problem. hog right now. But uh, with that said, it's uh, great to see you. And uh, like I said, I just needed to get away from Hillary for a little while because uh, she's a little feisty with those hands. Bernie, 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 she keeps saying. And, uh, and I keep saying, no, no, no. And she says, yes, yes, yes. But I'm okay. Uh, Bye, guys. Uh, it's just so gross. It really is creepy when you do it. Like it is. It's creepy. People don't understand like it is. It's weird. No, 
I guess I'm good at it, I suppose. You are. It's very method. Well. You're very method. Oh. Uh, Declan, you're being particularly mean this evening. Uh, what is happening? Or are we are we having a candidate I situation? This afternoon. Some people accidentally click on the Google link. Yes, they do. But you're as which is why we discuss you shouldn't send them the Google thing. All right, I won't do it anymore. I we've had this discussion so many times. Anybody well, can track that how many times we've been having this to... discussion? Because also there's a generational thing, no pun intended. But like some of the guests who are older maybe don't know that there's a stream yard and they just click on the Google link. Seriously, I've told you to stop doing that. Stop sending them the calendar invite. Well, I'll try not to make that mistake again. But of course, now I am going to resend as I instructed. Uh, well, as I let Audit know that I was going to send. Uh, there it is. Okay. We are having on a local candidate. And you guys know how important um, we feel is, uh, local politics are, especially nonpartisan politics. Um, and that's just something where the biggest change and things happen. Unfortunately, uh, Odd is running for county commission, not my seat. So I, and Number probably eight. not your, right, but Number I think eight. we're, yeah, yes, we're, but, but what would you have to remember? We're nine. I'm in nine now. Well, but here's the thing about here, Broward, mine's right here. Here's the thing about Broward County. That's very important to note. Nine. Um, even though it is a nonpartisan race and we emphasize constantly about the importance of nonpartisan races, because so many people, you know, even the experience that I had going to Iowa and New Hampshire and just meeting people out there, even people at high levels are like, I'm done with the Democratic Party. Yeah. So oh, when, we're going to have to talk about New Hampshire. Yeah. So, I spent time there, too. So it, it really is interesting when you hear this constant, like, I don't want to be involved anymore. Well, the good news is, whether it is city council, county commission, school board, running for mayor, those are all nonpartisan races. Now, unfortunately, in places like Broward County, they're kind of partisan. They become partisan anyway. They are. So you can't really disguise yourself as something other than, well, you may running in a nonpartisan race, but we're going to find out if you're a registered Democrat or not. Yeah. And that in many ways will determine whether or not you have a chance to win. That's a big problem. Yeah. But it's technically a nonpartisan race. Mm -hmm. And I, I, and you know, these are the seats that are really important. I, I actually think that the County commission is the biggest thing that anybody can really do locally. I do. I think that's where there's so much power. That's where you control things like Port Everglades and the airport. That's where you control so much of the area. Like, yeah, the small municipalities, they have their little fiefdoms, but really Broward County is very powerful and it's very big. And so, you know, the politics of it can get particularly disgusting and filthy. So anybody that you can get in there that isn't disgusting and filthy is a step in the right direction. Yeah, I definitely agree. But the problem, of course, here in Broward, generally speaking, is that we have to get we, we have this problem where people have been on the county commission for decades and decades. And that is another problem with politics. And I do believe and again, this is why I do. And I believe you believe in term limits. You know, I mean, OK, again, I go I go back and forth on that because 
And this is where the, the lefty lefties don't support term limits because the vote is the limit, right? And in theory, I do agree with that, except for that our electoral process is so beyond repair at this point in terms of fair elections. And I mean, I, I just don't, I don't trust that. Look, we have a minority making policy for the majority. We have a small minority that has taken over the government that does not represent the majority of people here. That's a broken republic. So why would, you know, I mean, I don't trust the voting process. So yes, in the case of where we are now, I do believe we need to have term limits. I do. And it is unfortunate that there might be lifelong civil servants that might want to be that would be really good in that capacity and would very well represent their communities. And and maybe that is unfortunate for some. But the amount right now of filth that has been sitting there for decades and decades and just we're getting nowhere. But yet they keep convincing people that we should keep voting for them. But yet if if you were really do like to me. If Nancy Pelosi was good at her job, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. If you've been in that job as long as she has and with having majorities and you can't get anything done to help anybody but yourself and your husband out of his DUI or your insider trading, you're just not doing a good job. So, yeah. And the majority of our problem, I think, are people like that. And that is something that would be solved from term limits. So, yes, there would be a small amount of people that, you know, maybe it wouldn't be good. Yeah. Well, I, I know. And, and that's what I'm saying. It's, it is unfortunate that there, that would, but he, you have to make rules based on the general and not the exception. And the general is that we have people sitting there for way too long, way too comfortable and way too wealthy off of us. Oh, 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 so gross. You know, I, so need a, gross. I need a mask. So I, I come on here and talk about exactly why I will be I in just, the Senate I until can't. I die. Ugh. But so we have to make policy based on what's the norm, not the exception. And the norm is that we have people sitting there for far too long. Bernie is the exception. So yes, I got I, so, yes, I do support term limits, but that's only because I do not support or trust our electoral process. <laughs> Please tell me this exists. Tell me there's a mix. You know, when I also ordered you a new, um, I, ordered, I offered, uh, I'm giving you a facelift. You are? I'm giving Bernie a little lift. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought... <laughs> <laughs> talking about me. No, uh, but I, I did order one for you. But yeah, no, I can't because you can't really talk like him. You can only do the Crypt Keeper sound and it's not a good thing. Well, he's so gross. I'll practice for a while I actually feel like about. hit like he's like I think of Death Becomes Her when they were like plastic and they were breaking apart. I feel like if you were to shake hands with him, his hand could come off. I could probably do. Uh, he's so good. Don't, 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 don't. <laughs> No, but no. it's definitely, I mean, if you can, uh, if, you know, some of them ask, like, are there other voices that you can do? And I, I would think that McConnell, Ugh, McConnell's he, definitely. He's just so I disgusting could, to I, me. I could get that. He's so gross. We're certainly doing a lot of great Like, things. why are he and his wife not in prison? I don't know. Oh, uh, yeah, they should. And Talk about insider trading and all sorts of stuff between her and him. And oh, my God. Robin, you are a doll. We can't thank you enough. That really means a thank lot. Thank you. Thank you, TM. That's a very sweet compliment. Um, what is our right. what is our uh, dollar sign doll- gen change? Right. What, what is our cash, cash app? app? We have a cat our cash app, which I basically what happened is I forfeited my cash app. So now anybody who needs cash app from me personally has to get it from gen change. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Has to get it from, but I don't know if the capitals matter or not. 
I don't know. All right. Well, let, let, then I, guess I don't I'll know do it if again. it does. Well, we'll try capital it again. J capital C. But so, yeah, I forfeited my cash app for GenCorp. We don't want to take any chances. We all know these things tend to be very case sensitive. So we don't want to. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're, we're trying and we're wanting to, you know, have obviously build broader audience. It's very difficult to do that on YouTube, given the time frame we started. Had we started like two years earlier, it would probably be a whole different animal. All right. So let's see. So is she being able to, uh, what, she can't get it? She, I'm going to have to, re- I, I think, you know what I think happens, and I and I think this happened last time, if I remember correctly. Okay. So what I think happened here is that the live stream link expires after a certain no. point. No, no, no. You could send it from the live stream link right now to her. Here, look. No, but, no, no, I already sent the link. Oh, and, okay. and she's showing that this isn't working. Um is uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to tell her this is probably a Google thing. Try Google. I don't understand any of that stuff. You're so like talking beyond. You're being very mean to me, Declan. I don't know why. Yeah, unless, he's on, he's, he's really. Well, powerful. unless it's, unless it's way, Sarah Bomberger again, and she's pretending, although she wasn't necessarily making fun of my looks. Baba, Baba Bowie. Yeah. Which of course is from Howard. Stern. Uh, listen, if you're going to chip in five bucks, no matter what the reason is, chip in. Let's see it. Why don't you do a super chat? This Prove is me yourself. with very, very minimal makeup. That's the thing. You look fine. Thank you. So please, since Jen really needs help with her looks, do please I? chip in five chip in five bucks. I don't think I Prove look so it. bad for 51. I don't think so. I, think I look all right. Uh I don't think Bernie is burning out TM. I think Bernie just doesn't. I think Bernie is Bernie. Yeah. He's always been a reformer, not a revolutionary. Steve, where would we be without you and your wonderful Love. commentary constantly? Thank and you. we are going to make the New York Health Act the first state in the country that's going to get universal health care. I hope so. I I'm think really they have the best so. chance. Speaking of New York, Thursday, um, I believe, okay, I haven't gotten all the confirmation. I am hosting a phone bank session for Melanie Dorigo um, Thursday at six. I do not know any other details or how that works or what it is. I just told them I would 6 do PM? it. 6 p.m.? Yes. Okay. On Thursday. Well, on Thursday, knock on wood, assuming it's still going to go through, we have a very special guest that is coming on the podcast. <gasps> Happens to be somebody that Jen is very, very... <laughs> I just think that you're, I just think your, your handle is funny. Google just, vomit. Yeah. Is that like pig vomit? Uh, we're going to talk to pig vomit. Pig w- vomit. W-N-B-C. W-N-B-C. <laughs> Monster. Wait, we're having a special guest on Thursday. Who are we having? We are having Robert John Burke. <gasps> oh, that's right. He is a firefighter. Okay. That's, that's really, really why I got him okay, on the show. Okay. So the thing is also about him, for him, it's almost like a double whammy because not only is he a firefighter, but he is also Tucker from Law & Order. What SVU. is going on here? Are we just Love all it. of a sudden we're getting money this guys evening? Are, no, You're making exciting. it rain. We're on this show. So, guys. Is that what it takes to make 50 bucks in 10 minutes? Is that what we just do you, guys, For anybody who watches uh, or uh, Law & Order SVU, um, our guest is Tucker. And it's like, that's so cool to me. Like that character was there from the very beginning. And I always loved that character and he's internal affairs, which nobody really likes internal affairs. And he was always like, but I always liked him. What in the and hell he's is a firefighter. Chris, you're awesome. Thank, Thank you, you for always telling everybody to smash the like button. That is very important. That's I, I, how the channel I, grows. Jan, what a doll. That really means a lot. Oh, we yeah. love all of you guys. guys. Yeah. And 
And since, I really don't need a beauty fund. I don't think I do. Well, since we've just added almost $70 to the account, why don't you tell the wonderful people in the audience how those funds will be allocated since we do have some important elections coming up. In we fact, do have our elections. primary election day is next Tuesday, and we do have some really solid local that we are lending a hand with right now. Yes. Uh, one that we are actually trying to get on the podcast the last, right now. The last donation from GenCore to a candidate was to Allison Miller, who is running for state attorney in Pasco, Pasco and Pinellas, Pinellas County. County. Um, and those are the kind of races, again, nonpartisan race uh, and very important. Well, wait, state attorney. No, it is partisan over there. It's partisan. I think it depends on the county. I, don't I could know. be wrong. No, but, but state attorney but generally she, is not supposed yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, but in theory. But anyway, she's just that's the kind of thing. She's a defense attorney, and I like the idea of more defense attorneys as state attorneys. So look at TM. You see, that's why she. That's why oh, she really seriously, right? Yeah. Oh my God. Get to be get to be thrown up on your shoulder and thrown in the uh, fireman's carry into my, the bedroom. It, oh my God, love the firefighters. <laughs> love the firefighters. I don't, I don't know what's going on that day. I mean, I. I, well, what I told her, I, to, okay, well, I told her to go to, to to try the Google link on her laptop. But if that doesn't work, uh, and Audie, if you're hearing this, just do it off your phone. That's probably going to be the easiest way to do it if she's able to yeah. get online. So, guys, Ed Tucker is the character on Law and Order SVU, and he died on the show, which was really sad. You know that he had brain cancer. I didn't know that he had brain. Shows cancer. you how much uh, it's been since I've really watched SVU. And it's been a few seasons, so it's not like that's a spoiler or anything. But so that no. was kind of sad because I really did like that character. And then finding out that he's actually a firefighter is really cool. Yes, and of course, uh, the hit. But Robert John Burke's always been a really solid actor. He's been in a number of for things sure. for a lot of years. Um, I think one of the first movies I saw him in, I was young, I saw Thinner, you know, Stephen King's short story that was made into a movie. Uh, that was disturbing in itself. Um, but yeah, he's really good. I've always, uh, you know, and it's not just because he's Irish, he but, you know, Tombstone he really, too. he was in Tombstone. He Which was one cool. of the, he was one of the, uh, no, he, he was one of the, Mc, uh, the McClory brothers. He was not, he was, the McClory's and the Clantons worked uh, together in Oh no, he's just really cute. Yeah, he's a good looking guy. Yeah, give it up for that. Oh, yes. You see, yeah. Well, you see, he worked with Dennis Leary in Rescue Me. Okay. And in Rescue Me, they, I mean, a lot of them were firefighters or at least had it been volunteer, as, as it should be. I mean, I think anytime you're trying to make a program as realistic as possible, the best way to do that is to make it as authentic as you can, bringing in with you. If you're doing a show about firefighters, and it should be with firemen. Uh, yeah. Did you know Steve Buscemi was a firefighter? Yes, I did, because after 9-11, he went back to his post. He yeah. went back to his station, and he worked for like a while. I mean, he was there for a while, even after they got through all the debris and stuff. He was still there. I did know that. All right. I don't know if she's going to make it on this evening and uh, maybe we'll try again on Thursday. I don't know. Uh, maybe. But we could do we could do my thing that I want. Yes, to do. let's do that. So, Jen, you have a I have a commentary commentary. I have a little commentary. OK, you need to get rid of that. The, the thing. Yeah. OK, so I wanted to just explain what the word exclusive means. OK, so when regarding a news article, it says, and I, this was just, if you Google it, this is a, an item or story published or broadcast by only one source. That means that it's something that no one else has covered or spoken about, that you are the only one who gets that scoop, right? And I did go to journalism school, so I'm pretty confident that that's what an exclusive means. And so I just found it very interesting 
that Kyle, of all people, and I respect Kyle, on August 12th actually posted exclusive that they spoke to Jesse Ventura about running for president. I think that's interesting given that on June 27th, we put out a clip about Jesse Ventura running for president. So I just think that's very interesting that they're referring to that as an exclusive. And I would also like to point out that when somebody has a second show, but they keep putting clips from their second show on their primary channel, it does not a turn on for people that like your primary channel. Fair enough. But yeah, the exclusive thing, I just think, and here's what bothers me. If you look right here, so ours has gotten 3.1 thousand views from a month ago. Theirs from the other day has 49,000 views. That's a lot of people. So people that are in a very big platform position, instead of building up smaller channels, actually steal their thunder. It's very uncool, as opposed to people like Mike Figueredo at The Humanist Report, who likes to build up and help smaller channels and not just basically do this. Because clearly you can afford to tell people, oh, by the way, so-and-so covered this too. But that would require sharing some, you know, some spotlight and not everybody likes to do that. So yeah, unfortunately, we it's have, very that's, bothersome. Well, that's to me. why we've often said, and listen, there's a lot of things that Mike Figueredo espouses that I don't share. Uh -oh. I think he's 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 definitely further left on social issues than I am, and that's okay. He's a member of the LGBTQ community and he fights very hard for them, and I totally respect that. And he's from Oregon. This isn't about policy at all. Yeah. This is about helping. But as a, but as a human being, other like, left channels. There's really is like there really isn't anyone better than Mike. Jordan Cheriton does a great job. He comes on our show. You know, he always promotes what we're doing. Um, you know, stuck in the middle, uh, Osiris. He's you know, he's yeah. I mean, it's like us. when you're when you're yeah. on our team in theory, meaning that you believe that you know people deserve a certain standard of living, and oh, cool, and a social safety net, and you think that we have an obligation to the least of these, and you're on that team of people, right? Then, and you have a big platform, and you use that platform to basically step on or step down or whatever to other channels instead of help lift them up, that doesn't help. Like this isn't a pie. If you share, you know, some of what you have and help spread this, it only helps our movement. And I just, I find it very frustrating that we're this little channel and yet we had Jesse Ventura come on our little channel and say this and another big channel is claiming some sort of exclusive. And I just find that kind of not cool. Well, it is what it is. And yes. Exactly. Uh, okay. So that's Kyle, fine. Yeah, Kyle gives up. I mean, again, uh, helping the little channels is, is not something that generally is done. And again, the way we do our format and one of the reasons why, I mean, look, are we suppressed? I have no doubt that we are. But the reason why our show doesn't grow leaps and bounds is because we don't do what most of the other shows do in order to grow their show, which is constant commentary on other shows and always talking about controversial topics as a mean for getting clicks. That is not what we do. Will we get some good clicks because we talked about Hillary and Bernie? Yeah, I'm sure we will. Well, and, and but, that's fair, but that's fair. Okay? Because it's relevant to the situation. Well, that's what's going on. that and again, when I started this podcast, it was meant to be long form interviews with experts and authors and people to really educate uh, people about issues and policy and how that affects real people. So we provide good interviews with good sources as the bulk of our show. So I don't really care that, yeah, there's some nonsense too about politics and yeah, it does help get clicks, but we're not, that's not the focus of what we're, we're offering substance. That's what I tend to believe. No, that's I, my I, thoughts. I definitely agree. Um, 
Appreciate you, Mr. I don't like, I don't say, appreciate you, Dirtbag. But yes, that is his name, Dirtbag Leftist. And really appreciate that. Uh, you know. Oh, I don't think it's a scoop by any means. I don't think it's my scoop. I'm just saying that if you're going to claim something is an exclusive, then it should be an exclusive. I, I, I could show you examples of other people that have talked about it as well. You know, so it's not just us. I'm just saying it's an opportunity for a small channel to, to you know, get something. And that was it. Oh, what I want to say about New Hampshire. So I just came back from a family trip and I got to go to Maine and New Hampshire for the first time. And it's just so beautiful there. And I have to say, if I were going to have to live, let's say I was forced to live in the Boston area, which by the way, I would rather not. First of all, it's excruciatingly hot there, just like it is here. The roads are And the drivers are, oh, don't get me started what on that. What do you mean that. the mass You don't like them? No. And, 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 and then of course I'm walking around with my son wearing a Yankees hat. So, oh, he oh, was, get, was, he don't get, even, was he catching? Oh, oh sure. the cab driver from Southie wasn't too pleased. Then you had the waitress and it just, it didn't go over well. Okay. What are you doing wearing that hat but, around? Oh, here? he got that. But then I, I got to tell you, if I had to live in that area, I would absolutely live in New Hampshire. Yeah. I would live in New state. Hampshire it's without a, great, a doubt. Great state. It is. And ironically, they don't have legalized cannabis. But the thing I like about New Hampshire, it is a very live and let live place. It oh, is yeah. so de- like they are so libertarian there, like just in general, just very live and let live. So even though it's not legal, nobody's coming after that's you for that. There. The they live, don't care. That's why it's called the live, de- liver, live, live free, free or, or die, die states. That's what it is. And 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 I I really and it's beautiful there. It's so mm. beautiful there. I really it's like it. it. It's it's like. It's as scenic as Massachusetts without the pretentiousness. Yes. That's what it is. Yeah, I get it totally. Mm-hmm. And I think, and the White Mountains were really pretty. I haven't really been in the Green Mountains in Vermont. I'm going to have to get on that. But the White Mountains were beautiful. And if anybody ever has an opportunity to go to the Flume Gorge at Franconia Notch State Park, it's one of the coolest things ever. TM, it's great that you watched the movie again. Remember, I ain't got time to bleed. Tell everybody about Maine. Oh, I love Maine. Okay, there was a lot of lobster. I'm going to say, I don't know just, why you did. You, you didn't bring me back a lobster roll. Did you? I mean, how am I going to bring you food? I can't believe you even brought me this. And and I don't, I'm not traveling with food, bringing you food back, but, um, a lobster roll from there would have been, really I, awesome. there was a lot of donuts. There were a lot of donuts starting in Boston. There was a lot of donuts and a lot of lobster rolls. So I will attest to like what I think is the best donut in Portland, Maine. Um, we tried two different ones. We tried Hi-Fi and the Holy Donut. And I will attest that the Holy Donut, hands down. The Holy Donut in Portland, Maine. And I would also say that I could live in Portland, Maine. I, Maine, I could live there. It was very um, seemingly underpopulated. I mean, granted, in this time of year, it's full of tourists. But mm. like, you get a vibe of that you don't normally have to wait for everything. And parking isn't a problem. And you can just live without everything being a congested traffic nightmare. So I liked it. And it was, you know, had a nice little art hippie kind of vibe going on there. The thing that I really like about New England in particular is their appreciation for history. Oh, yeah. They're mm-hmm. the, there is a, they're, the one thing that Massachusetts- They preserve. Massachusetts has an amazing historical preservation society. And I believe there are 100 exactly 100 historic sites in the state of Massachusetts that is part of the Restoration Society. I believe New Hampshire has this as well. Uh, There's a bunch in Maine too. So many great places to visit. I will say that I will not again 
um, or it's highly unlikely that I will ever do a national park um, in the summertime again. I'm just saying, like, it's highly unlikely. And That's I why everybody was, wants to be there in the fall. And I, well, yeah, but unfortunately, people with kids that my kids overlap. But um, the other the other thing is I failed to see moose. There was not a moose sighting. And my whole goal, basically, for years has been to see a moose. Like, I want to see moose. Like, this isn't <laughs> even like a small thing. And years ago, I looked up, where's the closest place for me to go to see moose? And Maine was the closest place from here to see the moose. And I failed to have a moose sighting. And I am not going to be deterred. And so I will be having to go to Denali next time and go to Alaska because I will see moose. And it's not going to be Colorado moose. I don't want to hear about the moose in Colorado. My husband came home. He saw moose in Colorado. Yeah, they introduced them there. That's nice. That's cool. I'm happy for the species. That's really cool. It seems a little bit unauthentic. It's sort of like going to the gem mine when they give you the pre-planned bucket that has the gems in it. Um, So no, I need to see wild moose in their indigenous place. And so now I'm just going to have to go further. I'm going to have to go to Alaska now. Very interesting, Steve. Yeah. Maybe that is uh, sort of this uh, karmic, um, you know. Oh, Franconia is just, it's so beautiful yeah. there. I love it. And, and I drove on, okay. And here's the name of the road. It's the Kankamagus or Kankamagus. K-A-N-C-A-M-A-G-U-S. Kankamagus is the name of this highway. And it is so beautiful. And it's just, you're like driving along this, the water and the rocks. And it's just so pretty. And I was very much liking New Hampshire. Yeah. For those people who think that, you know, New England is too liberal. Okay. It's not though. They really do an amazing job of preserving the environment. And not in rural Maine, by the way. Maine wasn't very, Maine is very mixed. I saw way more Trump signs than anything driving all through Maine and New Hampshire. I saw. But that also goes to show you how much economic populism is in the air, because in New England, there is only one senator who's in the GOP, and that's Susan Collins. That's it. Everyone else is a Democrat. So what that tells me is... When you think about the fact that Trump won a congressional district, they do a very the voting in Maine is actually really fair as well. No, it's not Kankamangus. Uh, there's no N. You think there's an N, but there's no N. <laughs> I, 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 I thought it was the Kankamangus, but it isn't. So anyway, anyway, you do. You, you had Trump win a congressional seat in Maine and he almost won New Hampshire both times. So even though these states are all blue up there. Economic populism, even if it's in the Republican Party, is going to resonate with the majority of voters. Maybe not enough to necessarily to get them to vote red. But the fact that that impact was so great in Maine and New Hampshire should really tell you something. And that's why this idea that things can't change. Oh, they can change. So you've never been to Maine? I don't think I have. Okay, so Portland's adorable, but then... You drive up from there to where Acadia is, and it's you drive through all these little like islands, these little New England islands off. It's just it's beyond beautiful. I saw a seal, which was just cool. I'm the only one who saw it. They, my people do believe me because there are seals there. But um, and it was it was just amazing. Like It's like the prettiest place. It could be the prettiest place I've been. And I've been to a lot of really pretty. I mean, like it reminded me of when I was in Switzerland. Yeah, pretty. Um, Acadia is just beautiful. It really is. I need to be there with a lot less people. And Maine has ranked choice voting, uh, which obviously makes it even better. Much and like women Alaska. in Maine are hardy. Mm. People, women in New England are hardy. 
Like these are the kinds of women that like, if they lose power, they know how to get shit done. These are the kind of women that know how to deal with stuff. I can't explain it. Like people that deal with like inclement weather and women that these are women that know how to put like chains on their own tires kind of women. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, and I say this with like complete respect and all. And then I think about like the couple of women that I met from Maine that were running and yeah, party. If you are so inclined, go to patreon.com forward slash generational change. If you would like to become a consistent contributor to our cause, because again, the cause is transforming politics into service, very important. And so for as little as $5 a month, you could become a member. That obviously means that you would be contributing, uh, how much would that be? $60 a year. It's $5 a month. Yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing. I think as I think as Jordan Sheraton, friend of the show, likes to say, it's about a quarter a day. So you can afford a quarter a day. And I could go a really and, long and way. Yeah, and it's just it's helpful. We're trying to just get word out there. Actually, it's no, not, it's less than that. It's about fifteen cents a day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just trying to get the word out there. And all of our money goes to support non-corporate candidates and local causes. Um, which and it would also go towards ballot initiatives and stuff like that too. I think everybody was feeling really uh, giving this evening since this is your first time back in the studio. Oh, that's so nice. We need so. to get the backlighting, I think. I got to get, we, I have, there's a guy who does a lot of work around our house and he's extremely crafty and he's the one who actually put this together. So he's a handyman, but he's very crafty and he wants to backlight it for me. I we think have, it would look cool. We have uh, had a change on the team. We'll let everybody know. Uh, our friend Alex has moved on. Our friend Ben, who cannot say good enough things about who created our intro video that you guys see for our video clips. That the reason up. passion justice video. That is who is now assisting. In Thank you for that, by the way, providing Hi. clips for Instagram. I haven't been meaning to ignore you since you TikTok. walked in. You know. Well, you know, we're, we're, we're recording. Here. I know, I'm trying to be but that's okay. We are professional, but we appreciate all of your support. You guys have been wonderful this evening. This yeah. has been uh, probably this has definitely been the best evening we've had in terms of super chat contributions since we did the festival. Oh, God. oh, and let me tell you the amount of um, homeless hygiene packs that I gave out, and I wish I had brought even more to North Carolina. But uh, those are the kinds of things that I get. I get like different things to hand out. There's only so much we could do on our own, but that's why we fight every day to make sure that people have greater opportunity because ultimately the goal here is to get people back on their feet. That is the goal. So we know we can't do it for everybody, but we are going to damn well try to do it our best. So with that said, it will not be Wednesday, guys. It will be Thursday. That is when we will be going live with Robert John Burke. And that's at what time? Eight o'clock. Okay, we can't go earlier because I got to do that phone bank. No, it will be eight o'clock. So yeah, lots to do this week. We appreciate your wonderful support. Thank you so much. Remember to hit that like button. Now that's Declan. Yes, that is Declan. Hit the like. So then the, the other person the, wasn't Declan. Hit the but not necessarily. Could have signed off for one account and hit another account. I just don't think he's you that. would be surprised how many I know, people create but multiple it just accounts. Seems, no, no, no. Ben, I'm back not me up on this. How many people create multiple accounts? No, no, no. Accounts I on know people media. create multiple accounts, but it was just different persona. No chance. It's the same dude. You think? Uh, 100%. Why does he have to be mean about my looks? Because he's a troll. And know, we've got to have this one. But, but you know what? It's like he's he's a pretty good troll because he gives us a lot of. You think the trolls are bad here? Go take a look at Tim Pool's show. Talk about making fun oh, of Oh, well, they, I got called Karen like a thousand times yeah. on that show. So, hey, look, when you've got, when you have that many people watching, you can't necessarily wonder necessarily how many trolls are out there because it's part of the game. So just okay. And then something that I am working on that I, that we're going to talk about is I have been extremely increasingly frustrated 
with groups like APAC and the Democratic Majority for Israel. And mm. and I'm, I'm reaching a point where I'm just, I'm done worrying about being on the defensive about how I feel because I feel like I am somebody that is in the morally right position and I'm very comfortable with that. And so it's ridiculous that I'd have to be playing defense. And we know that if we ever were to pursue anything in the future, that this is definitely going to be a financial, they're going to come after me. Exactly. That's true. It does look like Al Gore. <laughs> so I am actually in the process of putting together um, some sort of panel or program that is going to be Jews against APAC. And and I, I really want to talk about um, distinguishing Judaism from Zionism. I want to clearly delineate they who they are really, and what they do. And, they, and, and, and the people who support APAC have really tried to blur that line, kind of like corporate Democrats blurring the line on pro- what a progressive and is. And I am not going to sit that, around and When wait. they say that Judaism, all Judaism is Zionism, it's like, no, no, it's not. No, it isn't. And you know what? I am not going to sit around and wait for them to come after me with their money in a couple of years. I'm just not. So I'm just done. So I am going to just continue to be in what I believe the morally correct position and espouse morally correct things and they can continue doing what they're doing, but I am not hiding from them and I am not afraid of them. And I, I'm just, I that's think address, my plan. I, and I do think addressing it now rather than later is going to allow you an opportunity to get out ahead of the, the tactics they'll try because it's much easier to point, put your foot down and make your position known that you do not tolerate this rather than them just flooding money into Wasserman Schultz's coffers. They're going to do it. If you run against her, people need to know that this is why they're doing it. Yeah. And I, and you know what, really for me, it was how they treated Andy Levin and the fact that if they, if they're willing to go after a rabbi, a a rabbi, uh, then they're going to definitely come after me. And, and I know that. So I just, I'm not going to sit around and wait for that to happen. I am going to just, this is something we're going to discuss routinely. We are going to delineate between Judaism and Zionism. I am no longer tolerating being on the defensive position on this. So it's just ridiculous. Yeah. So that's, is. that's where I am. And so we will be putting, I'm putting together a program. Um, You'll see it soon. With, yeah. Katie Halper um, might be helping me out and we'll, we'll see what comes. We'll see you Thursday. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.